Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent guests who've been on JM and the AM. Ephraim Zuroff, the Nazi hunter himself, was with us. He's uh, co-written a book about the Jews of Lithuania and the Lithuanian community in general. Uh, check out the uh, conversation. It's next on JM Rewind here on the Nahum Siegel Network. Ephraim Zuroff is with us live via telephone. He is the... Uh, Chief Nazi Hunter of the Simon Wiesenthal Center and Director of the Center's Israel Office and Eastern European Affairs, a Holocaust historian, popular lecturer, and author, lives in Yerushalayim and is with us live via telephone. The brand-new book is entitled Our People, Discovering Lithuania's Hidden Holocaust. Ephraim Zuroff, an honor to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Honored to be here. Appreciate that very much. I am having difficulty pronouncing the name of your co-author. Could you share that with us? Sure, it's Ruta Vanagaita. How did you meet Ruta Vanagaita? Oh, that's an interesting story. Uh, Ruta uh, found out several years ago that two relatives of hers, her grandfather and her aunt's husband, had played a role in the persecution of Jews during the Shoah. She was really shocked by that. It was a real trauma for her, and she wanted to atone for it. And she came up with an idea to, to try and teach non-Jewish children in Lithuania all about uh, Jews, Jewish history, Jewish traditions. And she got a grant from the EU uh, to do this program called Being a Jew. And part of the program was, part of the grant was that she had to also have a conference on Holocaust education as part of the program. Right. But she didn't know who to ask, and she wasn't acquainted with the subject that well or anything like that. So she went to the people in Lithuania who were involved in it, and they said to her, listen, you can invite whomever you want, with two exceptions, Ephraim Zuroff and David Katz. So I don't know if the listeners know who David is. David is a world-renowned Yiddish scholar right. who came to Vilna to teach Yiddish. For many years, had no involvement in local politics or anything. But when the Lithuanian government tried to put Jewish partisans who saved their lives by joining the Soviet partisans on trial for supposed war crimes against Lithuanian civilians, he began to understand that there's a serious problem in Lithuania in terms of the narrative of the Shoah. And he has a wonderful website, for those of you who are interested, called DefendingHistory.com. And... Um, He's one of the people who has actively combated what we call Holocaust distortion. So in other words, in Lithuania, they don't deny that the Shoah took place. They just changed the narrative. The Germans and Austrians came to our, our country and murdered our Jews, never. Right. If you press them, they'll say, ah, there were a few degenerates, who, local degenerates, who, but they're marginal elements, not part of our society. Anyway, so Ruta, um, <laughs> Ruta being Ruta, she's a bit of an iconoclast. Uh, all she had to hear was that she can't invite Ephraim Zuroff and David Katz, and she, of course, invited us. <laughs> now, I couldn't come to the conference because I was already committed to a bunch of lectures in the States. It was on Yom HaShoah. But I came a month before that to protest against a neo-Nazi march in Vilna. And uh, I said to myself, let me meet this woman. You know? I hadn't been invited to speak in Lithuania in 25 years or 20 years already, and she was ready to pay my expenses and everything, even give me an honorarium. Oh, uh. So I meet, I meet Ruta, and, and she tells me 
the story. She tells me that her relatives were involved. Now, I had been coming to Lithuania dozens of times since Lithuania became independent. And I never met a single Lithuanian who ever admitted that their families or friends or family friends had been involved in, in the murders. And I couldn't believe it. Now, she was one of the most, if not the most popular author in Lithuania. Her previous book, before the book on the Shoah, had sold 50,000 copies in a country of less than 2.5 million people. It was a book of advice to women at 50. In other words, for a lot of the people living in the villages, the women especially, their lives are over at 50, their, their husbands are drunk, or they don't have husbands, or they ran away, there's no love, there's no, no hope of love, and, 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 you know, finding a way to make life meaningful. And Ruta wrote a book explaining, giving them practical advice what to do. And I, I've been uh, in Lithuania with Ruta on more than one occasion, many occasions, in which people come up to her, who she has no idea who they are, they give her a big kiss, and they, and she, they say, you saved my life. Hmm, interesting. So, Ephraim so, Zuroff is with us live via telephones. Is this narrative different than, than what we're used to from other countries? In other words, you say that you never met anybody from Lithuania who admitted or, or spoke about their family's involvement in the Holocaust. But, I mean, one can can also say the same about other countries as well, right? Not completely. In Germany, you have plenty of people who admit that their relatives were involved. Poland? Um, the, Poland, No. In other words, the, this is a, a classical Eastern European post-communist problem. Now, you have to remember something. When these countries, when the war was over, they basically exchanged a Nazi occupation for a Soviet occupation or communist domination. Right. Right. In other words, right. they didn't become liberal democracies. Right. So, and the Soviets did their own manipulation of the history of the Shoah. As a matter of fact, in, in, in the Soviet Union, they never used the word Holocaust till the late 70s or early 80s. And they never acknowledged the unique fate of the Jews during the Holocaust. Hmm. And in other words, they did their own manipulation. So in other words, the, the, the locals didn't really understand the scope, know the scope, or want to know the scope, because you have to remember something. Only in Eastern Europe did collaboration with the Nazis include participation in systematic mass murder. Right. In other words, everywhere Nazis tried to enlist local helpers, it was very important because they were short-handed and they wanted to show the local population supported the steps being taken. But, listen, outside of Eastern Europe, the helpers basically assisted in the initial stages, identifying, defining a Jew, identifying them, passing regulations making their lives impossible to earn a living, in some places putting them into a specific uh, residential area, and then rounding them up and putting them on trains, mostly trains, but in some cases on boats, to send them somewhere else to be murdered by someone else. Right. In other words, the Vichy police did, weren't the ones who mass murdered the Jews. Right. They, they the just, Dutch NSB, the same. They, just, they, I mean? they the, just helped a great deal. They prepared the stages. What they did is an accessory to murder. I'm not saying it to in any right. way condone what happened in Western, Northern, and Southern Europe. Right. But it's different than what happened in Eastern Europe. All right. What's different so about What's different about Lithuania? So Lithuania is a classic example. Uh, they had the highest percentage of victims in Eastern in in of all the large communities. There were 220,000 Jews living in Lithuania under the Nazi occupation of whom 
212,000 were murdered. Now, there were less than 1,000 Germans in Lithuania during the Nazi occupation. And the murders were carried out, it was individual murder, because 90% of the people were shot right near their homes. Right. In other words, it's not like shoving 200 Jews into a gas chamber and dropping the Cyclone B. Every single one of them had to be murdered personally. So that's an incredibly difficult logistic uh, operation. And there were 220 Jewish communities in Lithuania. So you need an incredible amount of manpower. The Germans didn't know Lithuanians. They didn't know the topography. They didn't know the geography. So they, had, they needed help. And the leadership, the political leadership of, of Lithuania, basically told the people who had served in, in their local administration before the first, first Russian occupation, of 1940, of June 1940, to come back to serve the Germans. So, essenti- and they did. so essentially, and, and we get this, I guess, from the title of the book, Discovering Lithuania's Hidden Holocaust, essentially it was a holocaust within a holocaust, meaning that the Germans set up, I don't know if we call it the attitude or the atmosphere, uh, you know, in Europe for that era, obviously, you know, and, and their and their dominance was was obvious. Uh, but in, but without the cooperation and without the uh, system that you just described in Lithuania, they would never have been able to have handled what they referred to. They would never be able to handle their goal for Lithuanian Jews themselves. It would have been impossible logistically, right? Correct. Okay, that's that's absolutely correct. And, that's very accurate. And uh, were all 220 communities in jeopardy? Were all 220? You know, every single one of them. In every single one of these communities, Lithuanians were actively involved. And not only that, there were quite a few places where the only murderers were Lithuanians, or there were some places where, for example, the only Germans present were photographing, and they weren't even doing the shooting. It was Lithuanians doing the shooting. The, 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 shooting. the most well-known episode of Jews mass murdered in Lithuania would be what? Is there one? Listen, the mo- most single event, okay? It would be the mass murder of 10,000 Jews in Kovno on October 28, 1941 at the Ninth Fort. The Tsar had built a of fortifications around the city, and some of those fortifications were used as mass murder sites. And those were famous was the Ninth, Ninth Fort. And those perpetrators were all Lithuania? Primarily, almost all Lithuanians, yeah. Uh, Is there physical evidence? Now, listen, we, we interviewed, listen, we went to 40 places of mass murder. And I. We went to 35 in Lithuania and 5 in Belarus. Listen, the, there was a Lithuanian unit sent to Belarus to kill, to kill Belarusian Jews. They murdered 20,000 Jews. What does one in see? 41 and 42. What does one see when they tour those sites? What evidence is there? So in, in Belarus, let, let's separate between the two. Belarus, it, the, the monuments are with so, in Sovietis, I would say. In other words, here lie peaceful Soviet citizens who were murdered by Hitlerite fascists. In other words, that's the way he was in the Soviet Union, because, as I said, they didn't acknowledge the fate of the Jews. And Belarus, the, Belarus is like, you want to know what the Soviet Union was like? Go visit Belarus. That's the thing closest to the Soviet Union. But in Lithuania itself, now the, the, the monuments say they were murdered by the Nazis and their helpers. It was Jews. They identify the, uh, they identify the victims as Jews. Um, but a lot of the places are neglected. No one comes. But when I, you know, ask, no, when, when I ask about evidence, I mean, do you see areas of mass graves? Do you see areas where there, there's, you know, proof? They're where, all hidden. They're hidden in forests. In Mo- Lithuania is a beautiful country, physically beautiful country. I get that they're hidden, but did, you, but did you see any of them? We saw, 
we saw we went to thirty five places like this. Oh, and and they did include actual physical, not just monuments, but actual physical evidence of what had happened there. No, listen. It wasn't as if we could go there and pick up bones. I understand that, but I'm saying what one could go there and say here on this spot is where this mass. We murder. know exactly where the spot was because there's a wonderful atlas of the Holocaust in Lithuania. Wow, which identifies every single mass murder. There are 234 mass murder sites in Lithuania, and I sometimes very cynically say that the beauty of Lithuania is that any resident of the country can reach a place of mass murder within less than half an hour from his home. Unbelievable. You know, when I first read the book, I understood why it was important to write this book, because, as you've described, you know, people think that this was a German-only and possibly even only Central European situation going on during World War II, and and obviously that's an important message. But now that I speak with you, I, I, I get a better perspective, and that is that not only were all the perpetrators non-Germans, or the majority of them, as you describe, majority, not, non-Germans, not all of them, but yeah. they're incredible lessons for Jewish existence today that we could learn from this. If we think it's only the enemies of the Jews and the ones who are really outspoken, who are ready to, uh, who are ready to uh, unabashedly, um, uh, verbally and physically uh, uh, destroy Jews, one has to remember that there are a lot of accomplices in, in, in those types of arenas. Listen, for me... Forty years of Nazi hunting have taught me something, and that is one of the, to, me, to my mind, the horror of the Holocaust is that 99% of the people who carried out the murders were absolutely normative people. In other words, the Nazis were able to create a geopolitical uh, reality in which it was more normal to kill a Jew than to save a Jew. These people were not involved in, in criminal activity before the war. They were not involved in 99% of the cases, 98% of the cases in criminal activity after the war. But during World War II, they were a bunch of, you know, horrible, horrible criminals. And, and if we they look... the most horrific things. And if we look, frankly, at some of the places today on this planet who create, you know, where, where governments and, and movements create geopolitical atmospheres, you know, the, 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 it, again, you know, uh, there are people who, who follow blindly and are and are able to become or, or transform from, as you say, normative people to actual murderers. Right. That's a very, that's a very sad truth. So the, we had an enormous success with this book in Lithuania. It became a runaway bestseller. And the, but the only reason this book was published in Lithuania, and it was published first in Lithuania, was because Ruta's, Ruta went to the publisher, and as she's like the goose who laid the golden eggs, you understand, for the publisher. So she had written this book about women at 50, so we met with the publisher, and the publisher said, Ruta, why don't you write a book about men? She goes, okay, I'll write a book about men, but first I'm gonna, you're going to publish another book, a book that I'm writing right now. Ah, Ruta, you're already writing a book. Well, that's wonderful. What are you writing about? The Holocaust. What, are you crazy? Who's going to buy a book on the Holocaust? She said to them, if you want me to continue with you, you're going to publish the book. So they made one condition. It's a very interesting condition, that Ruta not tell anybody what the subject of the book was until the book came out. Mm. And that was very important because it meant that the government was not ready for what happened. Right. And on the day before uh, International Holocaust Memorial Day, Ruta found the headquarters of the unit that murdered 70,000 Jews in Ponar outside Vilna. And in what, is, what was then an Italian restaurant... We launched a book along with two 
priest. She interviewed the two most popular priests in Lithuania, one Catholic. Lithuania is primarily a Catholic country, and one evangelical. And they said all the right things, how important it is to, to be truthful about history, how Lithuania has to face its history. And they were at, they were at the launch. So when the reporters and the press, the media, got a hold of the invitation, they couldn't understand what's going on. Ruta Venegaita, the most popular author on Lithuania, who writes about women at 50, together with Richard Davekas and Thomas Chernas, the two priests, one of whom is a national hero for some other reason, and Ephraim Zurov, the most hated Jew in Lithuania. <laughs> so, so what's it all about? What's going on here? And, and, and it, it, listen, they printed, the first printing was 2,000 copies, sold out in 48 hours, and eventually sold 20,000 copies, with this bestseller being 5,000 copies. And 100,000 people read it because there were lines of months for people to get it out of the public libraries. But the government ultimately took revenge on Ruta. And a year and a half later, when she questioned whether or not the Lithuanians should honor one of the heads of the anti-Soviet resistance after the war, and she read his file in the KGB archives, she had done a lot of research there, and she said it's not, she's not sure it's a good thing, the next day, her publisher announced they're breaking relations with her. They took all her books, all six books, only one of which was about the Shoah, out of the bookstores, 27,000 copies. And, she, and then they said initially they're going to turn it into toilet paper. Now, in the end, that's not what happened, and she actually got the books back. But she was stuck with them. No bookseller wanted to take her books. But now, finally, thank God, she's come out with a second book with Christoph Dickmann, Who's the most, the biggest expert, biggest historian expert on the hist on the history of the Shoah in Lithuania, and it's called "How Did It Happen?" And it's she asked the questions, all sorts of questions that aroused in the course of our book, things that she didn't understand in terms of the processes at work, and he answered her. And this is a guy who was appointed to the National Commission for the Investigation of the Holocaust, so they can't say that he's a Russian agent. You know, when when our book came out. Oh, Ruta's working for Putin. And Zurov certainly is working for Putin, or for the Jews, or for both of them. Or we're being paid by both of them. And uh, the head of national security went on, na on national television and said that the book was a threat to Lithuanian security, as if Putin is going to come invade, invade Lithuania now that the book came out. Unbelievable. Is her life in danger over there? No, not anymore. Now, she's back in Lithuania, and her life is no longer in danger, thank God. But she spent three years in Israel. She speaks not a bad, she, Hebrew's not so bad. And, um, and, and is Lithuania angry, sad, combination? What is the, I don't mean, I don't mean, I don't, I don't mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't mean, I don't mean the government of Lithuania. I'm saying the people in Lithuania, how, what, what is their mood after all this? The people, the younger people, I think, are, are on the one hand shocked, but thankful that the truth is being told. The older people, you know, Ruta told me a lot of stories. She was at, there's a big book fair in, in, um, in Vilna, the biggest one in the Baltics in the fall. And um, the year that the book came out, many, many elderly people came up to her and said, Thank you so much. Now we're finally talking about what happened to the Jews. Wow. And because each one felt that what had happened was only in their small town. They didn't realize that this was a national disaster right. everywhere. And uh, it gave them a certain sense that uh, the, truth, the truth must be told. I have to say, you know what? I'll tell you one story from the book that really brings tears to my heart. And, and, I, and I was on the verge of tears when, when this happened. 
we were in a town near where my grandfather was born. My grandfather's from Ligmian, and this is from Shnenshoneli, Novo Shvenziana in Yiddish. And we see an old woman. I, I saw an old woman leaving a, a grocery store, and she looked the right age to have been old enough to remember something from the war. So I said to Ruta, I, I don't speak Lithuanian, so I said to Ruta, go, go ask her. Maybe she remembers something. Okay. So she, her name was Olga, and she said that um, she had been friendly with the... She, her family was friendly with the Jewish family. Both families had two girls, one older, like about 15, and the other one, she was seven or eight, and her friend in the other family also the same age. And when the decree started against the Jews and it became clear that some very bad things might happen, there was a very intense discussion in her family whether her family can save her friend. So I said to her, I said, you, you must have been afraid of the Germans. She said, no, we were afraid of our neighbors. And she started crying. And I'm telling you, it was the most That proves your whole thing. point. That proves your whole point. Exactly. And, and I, I, I'm almost positive I can tell you that she had never told this story to anybody. It was like an enormous rock rolled off her heart. <sighs> she was finally able to speak to someone who could empathize with what she had gone through. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, when I read this book, I felt like I was reading one of the most important books about the uh, era of the Shoah. Uh, and I, uh, I'm highly recommending it. Ephraim Zuroff uh, with us. The book is entitled Our People Discovering Lithuania's Hidden Holocaust. Our People Discovering Lithuania's Hidden Holocaust. And as we alluded to earlier, who knows in how many other countries this type of uh, scenario was duplicated. Uh, something to really keep in mind when we think about uh, the Shoah and the effect that the, um, that the entire movement had on the uh, present and future of the Jewish people. Uh, our people discovering Lithuania's hidden Holocaust. Can I assume this book is uh, available in all the usual places? Yeah, in the usual places. Certainly in Amazon and you know the uh, Barnes and Noble and all of that. And a lot of the museums are selling. Wiesenthal Center is also selling it, and and uh, it's gotten a lot of attention. I think. But listen, it's 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 rather unique if you think about it. I'm I'm a descendant of. The victims, and was, I'm even named for my great uncle, Rabbi Ephraim Zar, who's Rosh Hashiva in Horodich, and ran away to Vilna. I'll tell you one one interesting story. We, I, one of the most dramatic things for me in the research that I did in my book on the Vatatzala, my PhD, was when I discovered the name of my great uncle, his wife, and his two boys on a list of people who were sent Shanghai permits on May 16, 1941. Oh, yeah. Now, unfortunately, they they were murdered in the Shoah. Apparently, they never got them, or they weren't able to use them, or whatever. He was one of these uh, Rosh Yeshiva who ran away to Vilna when Vilna was turned over to the Lithuanians by the Russians in '39. Mm-hmm. In any event, and I found his address. His address was on a list of people who had been sent to visas. So, before we went on the mission, I went with Ruta to go to this building and to see if we could see the apartment where he was living with his wife and the two boys. So the entrance to the to that place where, where their apartment was was locked. And we looked around. Then someone stuck his head out from the same entrance. And Ruta starts telling him, listen, this guy came from Israel. His great uncle lived here. He'd like to see the apartment. So the guy says to don't try and fool me. 
this guy is pointing to me. He's looking for the bad guys. <laughs> so, in other words, he knew who I was. Mm-hmm. The Nazi hunter, right? Yep. So, but anyway, he finally opened the, he opened the entrance, okay? So we go upstairs, we knock on the door, and no, no one answered. And then, after we left, we thanked the person and, and said to us, listen, I still don't believe you. Meaning? Meaning that I'm looking for Nazi war criminals. I'm not looking for my uncle, ah. or my great uncle. <laughs> now I understand. <laughs> now he, he could have. No, no. Listen, I'm a very well. known... You'll excuse me, but I have to tell you that I'm quite well known in Lithuania. I'm probably the most hated Jew in the country, easily. Unbelievable. Uh, the book is called "Our People: Discovering Lithuania's Hidden Holocaust." Ephraim Zurov, always an honor and pleasure to speak with you, and you always teach me and us a great deal. And I thank you for that. Thanks, Nachum. Great to be on the show and wish you and your crew much success. Amen. Thank you so much for that. Our People Discovering Lithuania's Hidden Holocaust. I am highly recommending it. It's available Amazon and all the traditional places. Uh, check it out, everybody. Ephraim Zurof, Z-U-R-O-F-F, responsible for it. And this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSingle.com and the NachumSingle Network, and of course, in the beloved NSN app. That was my conversation with Ephraim Zurov. Next up, Jake Novak. He had things to say about the uh, recent debate between uh, Trump and Biden and some uh, observations coming up uh, in front of the election. Jake Novak, with all of that, he was a recent guest on JM the AM. Here he is on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. JM and the AM were 12 days away from the election. Hard to believe, huh? I remember when it was 12 months away, but we're 12 days away from the election and... Uh, the amazing political commentator and analyst, and, and, and analyst Jake Novak at Jake Jake NY on Twitter, and who is uh, the host of Novak Now every single Monday at 11 a.m., which has been playing to critical acclaim every single week. He's with us live via telephone to talk about the latest regarding the upcoming contest between President Trump and former Vice President Biden. Jake Novak, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Obviously, uh, and 12 days ahead, so thank you. I'll tell you, it's it's hard to believe we finally got to this point, frankly, <laughs> after everything that's been going on. Can Is there any way, there any way? to, uh, and I don't know, we're getting a lot of feedback. Uh, if I don't know if you uh, have us on a certain type of mechanism over there. Uh, is there any way to... Um, to simply get to the core of the issue of why, unlike in previous elections, and I've been around for a while, so I think I could safely state this, unlike in previous elections, uh, the mainstream media is clearly trying to manipulate this one as much as possible. Number one, do you agree? And number two, why? Well, I do agree, and this has something to do with even before this presidency, although the Trump presidency took us over a a particular line here, but it was going in that direction for many years, which is people in journalism right now, especially in television journalism, but uh, but at the major newspapers, I think this isn't necessarily so true at the local news level and at smaller newspapers, but at big newspapers and and the major television networks, People are coming in as advocates. They're not coming in as journalists. Now, I'm still a person who does not believe that at any time there was any any such thing as an unbiased 
reporter or person. That's just not humanly possible. Anyone who says that you can be unbiased is, is doesn't understand human, human beings. Right. However, there was a level of fairness. There was a level of, I may not really like this other side, but I've got to have the same standards for the way that I report on both sides or on many different candidates. And just in the last week, we've seen how that's long been trashed. You know, we know that innuendo and anonymous source, no evidence stories about President Trump have been reported and put on headlines and made major news for, for four years now, whereas stories with much, with much, much more evidence behind them and much, much more people willing to go on the record against President Trump's opponents or anyone who isn't President Trump don't get reported. And, of course, they went the extra step of having, attempting to censor those stories, stories about Joe Biden in the last few days. Of course, that's completely backfired, by the way, but it's still, <laughs> that's what we've seen. And there's just no denying this. And, you know, this is a very this is a very scary place we're going. And it's led by people like, there's a professor at NYU who's been the chairman of the journalism department in the past. He's still there. Who, you know, I used to teach part-time at NYU journalism, and he used to tell the students in my presence, don't go into news if you, you know, who wants to go into news and be a referee and be like, you know, an unbiased or a middle-ground type person? Be, go and be an advocate. And unfortunately, what he's basically telling them and what a lot of people in journalism believe now is go into journalism with your conclusion already made and just go improve your conclusion by cherry picking or going after it. That's not journalism. That's advocacy. I'm, I'm all for advocacy. It's just it shouldn't be uh, disguised as journalism. Uh, Jake Novak is with us. If, in fact, the former vice president benefited from deals with foreign countries or foreign governments or foreign entities, whether they be Russia, Ukraine, China, whoever it may be. Um, I would think that this should be a big story that's being reported by at least a number of networks. And I'm not saying all of them, and I'm certainly not saying that, you know, the ones we wouldn't expect would, uh, wouldn't ignore it are not going to ignore it, but some networks at least, and some newspapers, and that there would be some reporters that would bring this up, or some moderators that would bring this up when the vice former vice president is in front of them. Why have we seen so little of that? Well, this is what again. This is the most incredible level of of how this has got how how bad this has become. Uh, it started actually the, the attempts by journalists at major television networks and newspapers to work together to protect or help a particular candidate. And this is all documented. You know, if, you're, if your listeners don't believe me, please go and look up these terms I'm mentioning. You can find it on the Internet or, or, or elsewhere. But this started a, as a really – as opposed to just something they might say at a cocktail party, wink at each other, uh, intimate. This was actually started – this became a planned outright effort. In 2008, there was something called the Journo List, Journo List. There was an email list that was created by a couple of people at a number of different newspapers and television networks to help then-candidate Barack Obama overcome what they thought would be potentially damning stories about him, negative stories about him coming from, even from places that weren't necessarily right-wing news outlets. And they, and they all talked about how they were going to water down these stories, make sure that they agree that they wouldn't report on them, and I believe that there are still lists like this out there. That was broken up because somebody exposed it, and there are a lot of people. And by the way, almost everybody on that list is still working at journalism. Nobody questions their, their professionalism when it absolutely should be. And so, I, you, know, I, you know, this is not a conspiracy theory. This is very well documented, and I think there's been a very strong effort. However, Nahum, it's backfired. And by that I mean, it's, I think we know more about, more people are talking about this story, this particular Joe Biden story, which, by the way, if Joe Biden took even one penny 
from a foreign power or a foreign co- corporate corporation while he was vice president in return for access to him, he cannot be president of the United States. And I'm not saying he's going to lose. I'm not saying anything, really. I'm just saying he can't be president. I mean, he might win the election, and then they're going to have to. It's, he can't. He can't effectively be president, and he really shouldn't even continue to run if this is true. And of course, we're getting people who, who are you know whether they're personally credible or not, they're too new in the public eye for us to know. But in the story that's in the New York Post today, and the and the Daily Mail in London has picked it up as well, we have someone who is, you know, definitely a business partner of Hunter Biden. That's not refuted, and is definitely knows the details of these deals because he's described them personally. Who is saying that the vice president at the time he was vice president did take money? So again, you know, let's see if this is true. But it's, it, this is a credible this is a credible allegation from someone who knows the details. It's the uh, so front anyway. Yeah, I was going to say it's a front front page of the New York Post. If anybody wants to look it up, it's right there. Yeah. Now. I, you know, it's backfired because I saw something really interesting yesterday that was a town hall type. It wasn't a town. It was a, it was a report on CBS News with Anthony Mason. And he's talking to a bunch of suburban uh, moms in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, a crucial state in the election. Mm-hmm. And he asked them, hey, what do you think about this Hunter Biden email story? Which, of course, is really a Joe Biden story. It's not just a Hunter Biden story. And you can tell by the way he's asking the question, he's expecting them either A, not to know much about it, or B, not to care. And this is two women who answered are very concerned about it. They talked about how it really bothers them. One woman says she thinks this is a tremendous scandal, and she's absolutely sure that you know the vice president is involved. And then the second woman says she's been concerned about it for years, about Hunter Biden. She says she still doesn't really know if she's going to vote for Trump, and she's really worried about him, too. But, I mean, it was almost laughable, because you could tell that they actually believe that their own mess doesn't stink sometimes. Now. I mean, they really think that they'd actually put a lid on this story. I think that They've done the opposite. Now you have people, middle-of-the-road, walk-of-life type of people who know about the story. They're talking about it. Whether it changes votes or not, you know me. I think that people make their decisions very early on in an election cycle. But this is, I think, a huge reason why the polls have tightened, because it's given people a little bit more courage or chizik or whatever you want to say to comment and say they're voting for Trump, whereas even a week ago, they would keep that a secret. If you believe that months ago the majority of Americans made their decision regarding this election, and we know you do, anybody who listens to your commentary knows that that you do, uh, then how do you explain the tightening of the election? How do you explain poll watching and seeing numbers fluctuate the way they do? A combination of two things. So first, my favorite little phrase is I like to call it the fake the cause. We decide who we're going to vote for pretty early on. Uh, the only two variables that remain up until around Election Day are whether we're going to say it publicly and what our justifications are going to be. And, and very often it's a fake because the real reason we don't vote for somebody, and it's all, all by the way, it's almost always a negative thing. Nine out of ten of us decide who we're not voting for as opposed to really voting for someone and really loving a guy or, or, or a woman who's going to run out. Because no woman has won, has won the election for president, so I don't have to sort of qualify that. But anyway, the point is, I think, I think so we, we decided that we, we've got to say something that everybody has at least heard of. And that's why this, this, this email story and this laptop story is trying to put a lid on it was so important for a lot of these people. Because you want to be able to say if you voted for Trump and you're worried that people are going to attack you, you want to be able to at least cite a story that everyone's heard of. And I think that it's pretty safe right now to say, yeah, this, this, this Hunter Biden laptop thing and Joe Biden taking money. I can't, I can't vote for him. I don't really love Trump, but I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to. So that's a pretty good fake because. But there's another reason I want to give a little bit. You know, your listeners a little bit more on that. Also, a lot of the pollsters have, you know, they're not all deliberately trying to get stuff wrong. I don't really think that that's what's going on. They get better at as the election goes along. It gets a little bit easier for them to find 
correct people. The, the voter registration rules get updated, you know, and that helps them find people. But at the same time, it's also it gets harder in a way because a lot of people register at the last minute. And if you've just registered, if you've gone to a Trump rally or a Biden event and you've just registered to vote, the pollsters won't find you. So if, if polls, it's a little bit of a mix. If polls come out for five swing states, do you do you believe that they sit in the CNN office <laughs> and, and say, you know, the two swing states that are that are stable for Biden, we're going to report on the others, we're going to ignore? Uh, well. Here's, a, here's another caveat to that. Remember, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, all those networks, they pay for pollsters. They, 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 they contract polling companies to do their polls, so they are very much financially tied towards promoting not only the polls that they've paid for, but not promoting polls that absolutely contradict the poll that they paid for. Uh... Now, I will tell you an insider story. On the day after President Trump won the election, the day after Election Day in 2016, the very big head honcho at CNBC got on the conference call with all of us. His name is Mark Hoffman. And he said, and the first thing he said was, you know, as a business network, one of the things we really should be looking at is whether these polling companies are worth it anymore. Right. And remember, these polling companies don't just work during elections. They also do corporate research in off years. Right. You know, when they're not doing election polling, they're trying to tell Colgate whether their new toothpaste is worth it. Right. And I have to honestly tell you I'm very disappointed because his charge to us as a network and his charge to us as journalists at the time, I, I was at CNBC at the time, I don't think was taken up by my colleagues. I don't think my colleagues seriously listened to him and, and really looked into it because if, if they had, they would have found a number of problems with polling today. Polling, I think, was incredibly accurate relative, you know, pretty much for a long time. But in this new world of cell phones and people moving around a little bit more and an active uh, effort by a lot of conservatives to not answer the phone when a pollster calls, thus you get a, a worse and worse sample, I think that really needs to be taken into account. It hasn't been taken into account. And shame on these people who continue to do their jobs and charge big money for what they must know are flawed surveys. Jake Novak is with us. All right, which leads to the two big questions. The first is... Um don't you agree on the subject of polls and exit polls? Don't you agree that that certain research is so reliable, especially on election day itself, that for someone to conjecture that we're going to leave election day or somewhat close to midnight that night and not have a good idea of the winner is likely not going to be the scenario. Do you agree with that? Or are you one of those people who feels that we may get to Wednesday or Thursday before we have a good indication of who won? I think it's looking more and more like we won't be in that um, in that terrible place of not knowing. Uh, now, that has a lot to do with court decisions, Malcolm. We've had a lot of court decisions in a number of states where they have capped the amount of time that, that mail-in votes can be received. That's going to be the big problem. If you have a state where you can send in your ballot up to three days after the election and still have it counted, then you're going to have a problem. Luckily for all of us looking for a resolution, it looks like only North Carolina is a state where three days after the election, if it's postmarked three days, your, your mail-in ballot will be counted. But, you know, even that isn't going to be so bad because we've had such a huge response in, in voter, in mail-in ballots already that I really think that they've tapped this out. Uh, I don't think that there, I mean, a, a huge 18-wheeler truck coming in with, with vote, you know, with mail-in ballots three days after the election is going to be very easily uh, labeled as, as, as phony. So I don't think that's going to happen. And I also think that, look, We've got a point, we're coming to a point now where we're also counting these, we're getting the totals on the vote-in ballots and the early in-person voting in a number of states. If you're interested in seeing how this election is going to be in the next few days, look at these numbers from Florida. Florida is posting every day from every county what the voter 
you know, the mail-in ballot totals are and what the in-person early voting totals are. And they don't tell you who voted. They don't tell you Trump or Biden, but they'll tell you Republican or Democrat. And you can pretty much guess that they'll pretty much vote along party lines. Right. And if the Democrats don't have a 200,000 or 220,000 vote edge by Election Day party, the combined vote by mail and in-person early voting, then they're not winning Florida. And I think that even by this weekend, in some cases even by tonight, but even by this weekend, we'll be able to tell whether they're going to hit that number. Very right. interesting. Exactly the opposite of so, what so many people thought in terms of the timing of this thing. Exactly. So, you know, listen, I have to you know, your listeners, who especially people who listen to my show, they know I, I am a huge fan of the state of Ohio being the real bellwether for elections and more. But this election is a little bit different because the Biden people have told me that my sources in this campaign for a year have told me they're betting everything on Florida. Florida is everything. And if we get to Friday or Saturday or Sunday and they can see they're not going to hit that advantage that they need to have by Election Day in the early voting then you'll see it in their faces, Malcolm. You'll see it in the way they're talking. They will—they can still win without Florida mathematically. Right. Can but you, when you put everything into a state and you don't get it, 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 it takes the air out of you. Yeah, yes or no, do you think Trump could win Minnesota? Yes. No, wow. I think it, and, 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 you know, I was, I, I was going to tell you, if you had asked me yesterday, I would have said toss-up. But yesterday we got the Senate poll out of Minnesota. There's a, there's a, there's a, a Democrat running, uh, the woman who took over for Al Franken, if those of you remember that scandal. She's running for a, 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 a full term in her own right. But she's an incumbent senator with all that power behind her. That race is a complete toss-up. The latest poll has her up only by one point, which means it's a toss-up. And if, that, if a Republican is out, you know, is going to win that Senate race or make it that close, then I think Trump could very well. I mean, if I really, right now, I would say he's going to win Minnesota. And that gives him a lot more electoral college uh, math, math, math you know, possibilities to win. Well, the electoral map is the key, and everybody, uh, <laughs> everybody's got an opinion about the electoral map and how it looks. How does the Novak electoral map look right now, 12 days before the election? I think it's going to be very similar to last time. By the way, it's very rare that you have a carbon copy election. So it won't be. So the first thing I want to tell you, listeners, is it won't be the same as last time. 306 Trump, 232 Hillary, or in this case, 232 Biden. It's not going to be the exact same. I think I think there's a very good chance that, that Donald Trump will lose one of the states that he won in 2016. I think the state that's most in danger for him is North Carolina, uh, possibly also Pennsylvania, but I think he's also going to pick up potentially Minnesota. I think he's got a good chance to win in New Hampshire. The only reason why he lost New Hampshire in 2016 is because busloads of people, literal busloads of people from Massachusetts illegally voted in New Hampshire. The governor of New Hampshire is a Republican who's going to make sure the buses don't come in this time. He's going to use COVID-19 as an excuse for that. <laughs> right. So that's another four that he's going to pick up. I think it's going to be similar in number, but the map will look a little bit different. So I still think that Donald Trump will get about 300 electoral college votes, and I think that Joe Biden's looking at around 240, something like that. And and that's going to be that. I so, don't think, you know, listen, I know that the polls have said otherwise, most of them have said that, but not the ones that were right. The polls that were right in 2016 have been saying what I'm saying right now. So I'm at a wedding last night, and in the span of a five-minute conversation, we have, you know, <laughs> Trump winning in the first 30 seconds and then Biden in the next 30. I mean, you know, like every, everyone is everyone is, is having difficulty predicting this. You are ready 12 days before the election to predict that he's going to win a second term, which means... God knows how those who hate him, both media and and radical, uh, violent groups, are going to react to this election. Yeah, well, I'm hoping that the, the the one silver lining out of these horrible events this summer and the riots this summer will be that there will be more preparedness from 
from law enforcement and, and, and people like that who will be more prepared for it this time. Also, maybe the, the, the folks who did it will be a little bit more tapped out. You know what's you know, going to happen, the, though? No, no I, agree, I agree with both those things, yeah. and I hope you're right. Yeah. Boy, do I hope you're right, although it could happen over a span of days, not just on Election Day. Yeah. And I'm sorry for interrupting, sure. but what might be more frustrating, no. and obviously we pray for everyone's safety first, but what might be more frustrating is you know what the accusations are going to be on Tuesday night if he wins. I mean, we're going to have to sit through, you know, the mainstream media letting us know how horrible we are, those who may have supported the president, mm-hmm. and how, you know, how racist this country is, and, and every issue that's completely irrelevant that they just, you know, that they just, you know, paint, uh, you know, paint the candidate with and paint the party with uh, in order to distract everybody from the real issues. We're, we're going to have to, they're going to be doubling down on all of that. We're going to have to sit through that, you know, 10 times what we used to have to. Yes, and I think, you know, this, and by the way, you, you have just been, you know, summarized, which has always been the Achilles heel of the new Democratic Party, starting with, it's, you know, Barack Obama flirted with this, and her Hillary Clinton did, and of course the, the Biden folks have done as well. Listen, one of the rules of politics for, that everyone followed for a long time until, I guess, 12 years ago was you never attack the voters. You can be as nasty as you want about the other candidates, but you don't say the other side's voters are evil. You don't say the other side's voters are stupid. You don't say the other side's voters are cheaters. You just don't do that. You say that about the candidates. You say that about the, the campaign. You don't say that about voters. And it backfires every time. Now, the only thing, it didn't backfire all that much on Barack Obama because when he said his famous line in 2008 that the other side is a bunch of people who are clinging to their Bibles and their religion and their guns, it actually was not reported until several months after he said it. It was a little audio recording. It didn't really get out as well. But think about the Mitt Romney, 47%, right. which he said. He basically, you know, that was a, it, it didn't, wasn't, you know, he was already going to lose, but it was a really stupid thing for him to say. Right. Hillary Clinton, the basket of deplorables, and right. Joe Biden called, saying that, you know, that, that, that I guess he said about 10 to 15% of the whole country is racist. He said it again last night, by the way. He came out with an audio message that he put on Twitter and social media and the internet talking about how America has never been great. And, wh- how, and know, wh- we have a racist past. And what was more, in, and what was more insulting, I would say, to not only uh, 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 black people, but I think to everybody when he said you're not black if you don't vote Democratic. I, yeah. I, I thought that was insulting to the entire country, frankly. It was. But, you know, and so we're so polarized right now that it did, you know, that would immediately disqualify a candidate 30 years ago. But now you can sort of spring by. But I think it's one of the things that really hurts. I, 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 listen, all those things you're saying are true. The fact is that you can't, this is like, listen, this is like living in Israel. Like, you know, is Israel going to do something and worry that the terrorists are going to get crazy about it and start right. a riot? Or you, you have to do what you have to do. If you oh, but, by, by the way, the bullies, by, by the way, yeah. I, I'm, I'm predicting riots no matter who wins. So it's not like, you know, <laughs> I, I think right. it matters, you know, what's going to happen at the polls. But uh, no matter right. who, but, um, you, you know, you, 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 you know, when, when hockey teams win the uh, NHL championship, <laughs> uh, their yeah. people burn down the city also. So it's not just losers right. that burn down the city. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. I think, you know, listen, I'm hoping that this summer's violence will, will have tapped out some of that stuff and also given the police a little bit more logistical um, intelligence on how to stop it. Right. And, you know, but remember, but, but you should know, even though we're, we're taking this as a, as, a, as a given, it's still manufactured. Right. I, I remember the morning after Donald Trump won, even before that call at CNBC, a couple of guys walking in the street in Manhattan, I overheard their conversation. They were not Trump voters, and they were just talking about – they were laughing about the result. They were like, oh, you know, this guy's fine. This was, and then a few days later, we're supposed to believe that the whole city was up in arms and wanting to burn the place down. Right. This is manufactured outrage. Most Americans, even in this highly political, angry state that we seem to be in, most Americans aren't on Twitter and Facebook all day getting angry. 
to have these, these this stuff is is manufactured outrage, manufactured stuff, and let's see if they still you know want to want to do that. They really want to put all that stuff together. Remember, as soon as you you have a second term president in office, it's time to start working on finding a new candidate for both parties for twenty twenty four. So maybe they'll be a little bit more distracted this time because they've got to do that, and they can't just protest the president is going to be leaving anyway. Understood. Maybe that's the thing. Jake Novak on the Nahum Siegel Network, Mondays at 11 a.m. In 12 days, we'll know if you're right, Jake. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Have a great week. Thursday, appreciate that. Thursday morning broadcast. More coming up here at JMNAM. That was my conversation with Jake Novak. David Cutler, NCSY Summer Programs. He was with us recently to give us an update and explain how things will hopefully work in the summer of 2021. David Cutler, NCSY Summer Programs, my guest on JMNAM. Now on Jam Rewind on the Nahum Single Network. Thursday morning broadcast, JMNAM. I may not chant his name the way the NCS wires do, but nonetheless, I am enthusiastically uh, pleased to welcome David Cutler, uh, the leader of all NCSY summer programs, to our airwaves for an important update. David Cutler, Shana Tova, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. How are you? Baruch Hashem. We are, uh, both you and I and thousands of others would like to be uh, looking at the real Jerusalem stone, would like to be in the real home of the Jewish people. And who knows, it's now October. We might be closer than we think, David. I hope at least. Right, Hashem. I, I, said, I don't like flying, and I've never wanted to get on a plane more in my life. Uh, <laughs> to get on, to, For me, I haven't been in Israel since last August, and uh, it feels like an eternity. So I've never wanted to see Jerusalem still more in my life. Oh, it's an eternity, all right. Uh, one of the messages that I received in advance of this conversation is that NCSY summer is full steam ahead, and boy, do I hope it stays that way between now and June of 2021. But you are operating as are your, uh, as is your staff, and frankly, all the uh, leaders and uh, and um, and and youngsters out there. Uh, you're operating as if uh, you are heading to Israel on time in the summer of 2021. Yeah, Baruch Hashem. What we've seen is that people are, you know, people really lost out this past summer. Obviously, it was it was a terrible time for everyone to have to sit home and not get their normal summer experience. And everyone, everyone opened up their summer programs much earlier. And everybody is so hungry and so excited to go back on a summer program, and especially, you know, going to Israel over the summer is a very special experience. And there are so many kids who didn't get to experience that a transformative uh, summer in our homeland. And people are very hungry and very excited. And we are operating under. You know, the assumption that we are going to be back to normal or as close to normal as possible in Hashem by the summer. So and, we're very excited. And some of the statistics prove it because already over 1,000 uh, kids have signed up for NCSY summer programs. It's pretty remarkable for the month of October. So, Yeah, thank God. You, you would think that it's still early. But again, on a normal year, where we have just started right around circus time, a little bit before uh, this year. We already started in the beginning of September. And again, the... The response has been just like we thought. We really thought people were going to be very excited to get back on board, very, very excited to latch onto something positive and to look forward to their summer experience even earlier. Um, that has definitely been the case. Uh, really and great. and you're heading toward at least 2,000 uh, who are heading to Israel this summer. That's aside from the programs that go on outside of Israel, plus over 20 programs in total. And hopefully we'll be able to feature them on Monday, July the 19th from Israel because Monday, July the 19th, you're already planning the big Yom CSY event, the one that was a little bit different in 2020, but hopefully the one that'll be uh, the way we're used to back uh, again in 20. 20- 
21. You also made a very important point at the beginning of this conversation. Uh, for many, it was a lost summer. And I don't mean to criticize the programs where kids ended up going, because uh, obviously a lot of them you know, jumped into action. Some of them, your programs, jumped into action to make sure that the kids would have something to do uh, of quality in 2020. But uh, obviously the Israel experience is one that's you know almost once in a lifetime uh, at this point. So there are a couple of grades that traditionally gravitate toward your programs en masse that really suffered, and one of them was last year's 10th graders. I was happy to see that you actually are thinking about them very seriously regarding the upcoming summer. Yeah, we really, Baruch Hashem, we, we knew that, you know, again, it, it's, camp is an exp- a special experience in general, and the summer is a very special experience, and going to Israel uh, really really is, is almost a, not a once-in-a-lifetime, but certainly once-in-a-teenager's uh, high right. school career. Right. And the fact that these 10th graders lost their summer, we knew that they were going to, not only did we know they wanted it, but they needed it. It's been such a transformative experience and such a meaningful experience in their lives that we, we really planned for each program to have an 11th grade track. Um, and it's been wildly successful. The 11th graders have signed up uh, really in, in a big way, and, uh, and we're very excited for both the 10th graders and the 11th graders, and that's why you know, the numbers are great and the enthusiasm is really is really terrific. All right, and we'll talk about the early bird. We'll talk about the deadlines in a minute, plus, of course, the website we'll give everybody. But first, tell us about the Marcus Foundation and their expanded role in the summer of uh, 2021. So we've been working, Baruch Hashem, we've been very fortunate. We've been working now with the Marcus Foundation. They, they decided, Baruch Hashem, um, that they wanted to revolutionize teen travel to Israel. In 2019, approximately 3,000 teens traveled to Israel over the summer. Um, and, and they really wanted to make sure that number grew, similar to a, a birthright-style fashion. And their, their goal is to actually be at 9,000 by the end of 2025. So they, wow. they created a program called Route 1. And the Route 1 vouchers, depending on the program, uh, are either $1,000 or $3,000 for a teen to go to Israel. It's not need-based. Uh, it's really to encourage kids to, again, to spend their summer in Israel. And it's as long as the program is three weeks in Israel, there, there, are, there are limited amount, and they are really, Baruch Hashem, flying off the shelf. And that's why we're, we're announcing that by the end of this month, a large majority of our vouchers will be gone, if not all of them. Uh, and therefore, people do need to sign up by the end of October. The early bird deadline is October the 31st. Uh, in general, the early bird deadline is October the 31st. Summer.ncsy.org is the website. Again, that's summer.ncsy.org. If you have specific questions about the summer of 2021, it's uh, summer at ncsy.org. Summer at ncsy.org. And of course, uh, in uh, David Cutler, NCSY summer program fashion, you're not letting this summer uh, 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 arrive without brand new programs uh, that are happening in Israel. Tell us about those. Yeah, so we expanded our offerings in Israel. It, was not, it wasn't the summer for us to to add many programs, even though we do have an, a, a large roster of programs that we're we're really considering and, and excited to announce in 2022. Now, but we're <laughs> we we added a couple programs in Israel, namely an Israel advocacy program. Uh, we really want. Obviously, Israel gets a lot of bad press, and we have so many kids in Israel and then who go on to their college campuses and uh, need to be able to to prepare to, to defend Israel and to love Israel. Uh, so we're working with the Stand With Us organization, God willing, and some others to make a really, really impressive Israel advocacy program in Israel this summer. I mean, they might even do something I shouldn't announce, but it, we're, we're working on going to Dubai. It's like it's like a really cool Woo! program uh, that hasn't been approved yet, but we're, we're working on it, and it's very cool. 
Um, that, so that's one program that we're offering in Israel. And then the other one is a Jewish arts and music program, which really there are a lot of kids out there. One of the things we, we really pride ourselves on is diversity. So we have, we have kids who love to just go learn in Israel. We have kids who love to just tour the land of Israel. We have kids who have internships in Israel. And now under the Next, next Step uh, internship track, uh, we have the Israel Advocacy Program and now a Jewish Arts and Music tra- tra- track also for kids who really want to, want to pursue the arts and, and, and music in, in Israel and, and the different studios and the recording opportunities and the different, you know, really, really cool opportunities in Israel, but while still being inspired and traveling the land uh, and spending summer with NCSY. And they're both under the Next Step program. I'm assuming Next Step essentially is committed to just creating and, uh, and, and expanding as many programs as possible each year, right? Exactly. Next Step is really about furthering your career, furthering your resume, furthering mm. your life. And so the first track they created was an internship program, which has been wildly successful, really excellent internships uh, in Israel and in every kind of field you can imagine. So they decided, Let, let's try to expand this now and, and include Israel advocacy and Jewish arts and music. And we have several other tracks that are, that are really being considered for, for, for the following summer. And it's uh, just been a very wildly successful idea. To There's so many different kinds of kids. There's no just one. You know, we have boys that love to play sports. And we have boys that love to come and have an internship and work in a lab or, or work in a not-for-profit. Or So many different kinds of kids that come to Israel. And girls who love to have chesed, girls who love to learn, girls who love to travel the land of Israel. So we really pride ourselves on our diversity and the, the number of offerings we have for kids in Israel and La- everywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, if you care about your children's education and about their growth experience, especially in light of what we have been through for the last seven months, and especially in light of uh, a lost summer for many in 2020, uh, you have to consider the NCSY summer programs. Take a look at what they have to offer. The website is very active with uh, so many different uh, so many different features and pieces of information. Go to summer.ncsy.org, summer.ncsy.org. The early bird deadline expires on the 31st of October, which is just 10 days away. So get that done as soon as possible. So you get the early bird and you meet the deadline for the uh, Route 1 vouchers, as David Cutler explained. And uh, the list of programs is now really amazing. It's always been amazing, but every year it gets more and more. And COVID has not stopped NCSY from adding uh, more to their summer program, as you just heard David describe. So they are very, very optimistic at the NCSY summer office. They're moving full steam ahead, just like they did, by the way, in 2020. David, to your credit, um, it, every week of COVID – uh, from March on, you reevaluated, and and if it was at all possible and realistic to consider programs still going to Israel, you kept them in motion until, of course, obviously uh, you had no, you had no choice but to cancel those plans. But I thought that was really a good attitude to keep everything going and everything active until the very last minute. Yeah, we really did. We really we really believe in what we do, and we really believe in the power of the summer and the power, especially in Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael, like we said, is, is really our sweet spot. We love, again, we love our programs in Baltimore on the Poconos um, and on the West Coast, and, and we really have beautiful programs here in the States, but, but Eretz Yisrael is a program, that, is a location that we want everyone to at least go through once in their high school career. So we did keep it open to the last possible moment. We ended up shifting to local programming, which was also very, very successful. Parents were very appreciative. Kids had a very meaningful, impactful summer here in the States in a, in a very safe way, uh, but really enjoyed it. Of course, it wasn't, it wasn't what they're used to. It wasn't you know, getting on a plane and really exp- experiencing 
uh, going far away from, from their families and really enjoying themselves in, in a very transformative, yeah. you know, Holy Land experience. But it, it, was it was less very successful. It was less adventurous, but it was still very, very positive. Thank God. Very true. And and what we're what we're prepared. One thing that I do want to mention is that we're aware of the, of this situation. We, we're aware that COVID is still is still out there. We don't have a crystal ball. So what we did is we did make a new refund policy. Everyone gets full refunds until March first. Oh. So we're aware. We want everyone to sign up. Risk free, really. There's nothing to worry about. God willing, as far as your your payments right now, everything is refundable till March 1st. So sign up by the early bird deadline. Get your applications in because there are some programs that are close to full. Believe it or not. Um, and again, the Route One vouchers, which are really again a thousand dollars or three thousand dollars off a program, is very significant. And they'll be mostly gone by the end of October. I like the March 1st date because if we don't know by March 1st, then. <laughs> Fill in the blank. If we don't know by March first what the future brings, yeah, and, I mean, gonna uh, take even more head off, hair off my head. So we're not looking, <laughs> we don't want that to happen. <laughs> Summer.ncsy.org, everybody. That's the website. Very simple. Summer.ncsy.org. Yom NCSY is the day after Tishabov. Tishabov is Sunday. You'll have a lot of people, please God, at the hotel for the Tishabov observance, and then literally the next night, it's going to be a night to celebrate. Yeah, we have, we have an unbelievable, I don't want to announce it. Now we'll announce it as we get closer to the okay. summer. But Yeoman CSY, we have planned for that night is incredible. It's going to be a new location this year, uh, more convenient for everybody, and it's going to be just what we're doing that night is going to be really spectacular and special, and it'll be on the heels of Tishabov, like you said. So we'll have God yeah. the Kumzits, like we always do at the Kotel, Bezrat Hashem. Uh, and then the next day will be just spectacular to uh, to enjoy Yom NCSY together. What a change of mood and uh, an, an incredible experience that is. Let's let's all root for the vaccine. Let's all pray for it together, and let's get this thing going. And uh, NCSY is full steam ahead for the summer of 2021. Go to summer.ncsy.org. David Cutler, continue your amazing work, and let's hope for a big, big successful run-up too, and then eventually a big successful summer. Thank you, Nachum. Always a pleasure speaking to you. And uh, like you said, we're all praying for the vaccine, and Hashem should uh, should, should keep us all safe and healthy. And uh, we're looking forward to spending time with everybody, Bizarat Hashem, including yourself, Miriam, and the whole team in Israel this summer. Much appreciated. Yes, let us hope and pray that we could serve the one above in full capacity with our schools, our shuls, our summer programs, all the uh, all the things that we uh, that we pursue: academics, recreation. No matter what the category, let it all be for the sake of the one above and as uh, fulfilling a, a method as possible um, without this uh, dreaded COVID-19 over us. More coming up. You're listening to a Thursday morning edition of JM in the AM. That was David Cutler in our recent conversation about NCSY summer programs. Thanks so much for listening in to JM Rewind. Plenty more coming up. Keep it on NSN, the Malcolm Siegel Network.